Bonsoir, mes amis. It is another episode of the People's Square. I'm your host, Borzoi, and with me as always is Eric Stryker. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. So today we have Maestro on. He recently translated um, a number of essays by a Quebecois fascist named Adrian Arcan. And um, the, the book is called, the collection is called Servium. I will serve. That's in Latin, and uh, it's essentially explaining the worldview of this sort of obscure figure, who was actually quite uh, prominent, possibly the most prominent, uh, open, self-described national socialist or fascist in North America during the 1930s, and he was uh, Arkan was. Put in, I believe they 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 used the Emergencies Act to put him in a camp during the war for no reason other than his political views. He was a uh, a journalist and a leader of a political party. He did not use violence or engage in criminal activity or espionage or anything. So they put him in, but they put him in prison during the war simply because he was undermining what they saw as the allied war effort just by existing. So uh, welcome, Maestro. Hi there, Borzoi, Eric Stryker, uh, the audience. Bonsoir. I am very happy to be back on the People's Square. Thank you so much for having me again. And I was oh, happy to uh, finalize the translation of the book. Yeah, yeah. So tell, tell me the story about this. So it's being published by Antelope Hill Books. It's out now, actually. Um, so how did, how did the idea for this come, come, come together? Well, actually, uh, it came out through my last, uh, presentation here and presence on the people's square. I was told that Antelope Hill was looking for French, uh, writers and translators. I myself already knew about Arcan and his works beforehand. I was actually given a choice between translating either this book, Serviam, or what could have been uh, some of the political thought of Joseph Morel, who actually, funny enough, wrote a, uh, a bit of a philosophical treatise on the uh, works of Arcan. So I got, the be I got to choose uh, finally both of them. And I obviously went with uh, someone who's a little more dear to my heart and someone who has impacted me uh, personally. Yes. So uh, one thing that's interesting, it says that the introduction was written by a father Oliver Riolt, right. and he's from the, the St. Pius X, right? Society of St. Pius X. And uh, so was that original? Is that something that, they, that he did for this edition, or was this already included in? Uh... Oh, if you're talking about Abbe Riou, no. Every single word that you see in the book, except for maybe the translator notes, is uh, from the original French. Ah. Uh, version of Serviam. I was going to write a forward myself, but I thought of just leaving the book as it was and presenting yeah. it uh, the way that it was presented to the French audience was the best thing to do. I think that honestly, this is a bit of my this this podcast is my forward in podcast ah. form. Yes, <laughs> excellent. So uh, let me just uh, let's just get right into this uh, this this kind of again sort of sort of obscure, but as Borzoi was telling me, uh, the ultimate K 
king of the midwits, Kevin Smith, <laughs> made a movie featuring Archon as the bad guy. Um, it's set in Canada, I believe in Winnipeg. What's it called, Borzoi? Yoga Hosers. It was a movie he cast his daughter in, and basically, I I was just skimming the, the Wikipedia thing on it because I'd never seen it, but basically, uh, Archon's right-hand man when they were Canadian Nazis is like, they're doing like, I can't remember if it's like Nazi zombie stuff or they're doing experiments oh, underground or something like that, but basically, these two 15-year-old yoga girls have to fight off, I guess, Nazi creations or something. So it's yeah, stupid doesn't even start to put it. I mean, uh, if anyone, like, if he's actually looked into the life of Arkan and everything that he's ever done, <laughs> it could not be further from the truth. Uh, this man, he did not deserve to be a politician. He was too honest, too much of a good, sweetheart-hearted character. To be yeah. playing like as like an evil figure, it like the the just the idea of a violent uh, fascist leader or individual is completely destroyed with the personality personality of Akhan. That you have a strong leader who, like I think was already mentioned, did not use violence um, right. except for to chase out some communist agitators who came actually into his uh, private meetings, which. You have to defend yourself in your own private space, obviously. That's completely justified. Well, let's compare uh, Adrian Arcon, a man who spoke uh, Latin, Greek. Uh, he was uh, mm -hmm. he spoke like 10 languages, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, maybe yes, not he ten. did. Uh, well, uh, I think he spoke five. Uh, he was actually fluent in yes. English. People right. do not know that. Funnily yeah. enough. Um, everyone thinks that he is some type of separatist, like uh, no. French nationalism. No, uh, on the contrary, you'll read in the book itself that he was very enamored by the British Commonwealth and uh, the British Empire in and of itself. Well, that's one thing that really that that was something unexpected with yes. Archon when I was reading this is that I assumed that he would be a Quebecois separatist. Uh Quite the contrary. And it's kind of interesting, too, because he's, he's very clearly believes that the Catholic Church, uh, you know, he, he's a racialist, but also believes the Catholic Church is intertwined with French Canadian identity and should be playing a prominent role in society. But at the same time, he doesn't preach animosity towards Protestants, um, in, if I'm not mistaken, in fact, oh no, he, he preaches towards them. Yes, to yes, the contrary, he preaches uh, reconciliation, working together. Um, the he he understands the two roots of Canada, which is the the French, the Gallo-Roman, and the Anglo-Saxon elements, and that these two must be protected, even to the extent of saying that you know Germans and uh, Eastern Europeans and Southern Europeans in Canada uh, should be, you know, some of his policies that they should be forced to assimilate either to the French or the Anglo cultures, right? So he was very much, um, very much a, what, what do you guys call that, D dominionism? Or a... In, up here in Canada, yes, you would be yes. um, someone who, uh, it, it, yes, in a way it would be considered dominionism, but it's not really a term that we use. Um, he was just pro dominion at the end of the day. I think he um, he was 
you sort of saw the project of Canada as being something that was from coast to coast, from the Pacific to the Atlantic, and it should stay that way as long as it's politically viable. Now, he did actually request for some, in his works and in his speeches, for a certain separation from the British government, more independence. But I would say that was more a a signal of the times than it actually was uh, his own thought. Uh, For example, there was the Alaskan boundary dispute that had happened maybe Oh, uh, right around uh, his early days, I think it took uh, by his 20s, he was definitely uh, well aware of this being an English uh, speaker himself. Essentially, the Alaskan boundary dispute was when the British government was supposed to be the negotiator between disputed islands between the American and Canadian government. So there's three judges sitting on each side, three Canadian judges, three American judges, three British judges. And essentially what had happened was, is that the Canadians thought that the British stabbed the, uh, stabbed the Canadians in the backside with the Brit- uh, the Americans, excuse me, uh. solely on economic grounds. And that's why today you have so many islands on that uh, Pacific coast that belong to Alaska. Right. So all of that, what ended up happening is fomented a strong sense of Canadian nationalism and identity. Yes. And of course, the old uh, Canadian flag Many people mm-hmm. in America, you know, we're, we're actually quite ignorant of our northern neighbors, but the older Canadian flag had the British Union Jack in it, the Dominion they call flag. It the red, yeah, they call it the Red Ensign. The Red oh, Ensign, yeah. yes. And, and and that flag is, uh, as much as, you know, perhaps some someone would accuse me of being an Anglophobe when it comes to the British Empire. You know, I clearly supported Germany in the war and stuff, but you have to admit, the the red ensign is much cooler than that stupid flag with the stupid leaf, that moronic flag that they created in the sixties, completely devoid of any meaning of anything. I mean, oh, of course <laughs> now I so stupid. Actually that, that stupid flag came out of uh, that new 20th century Canadian nationalism. Uh, what were they thinking? Uh, they're just trying to build a sense of identity that wasn't uh, distinctively British. It, it was moronic in retrospect. Well, the, the red uh, ensign <laughs> has includes the um, the Union Jack, but also mm-hmm. the French uh, crest, right? French, uh, Irish, yes, um, it includes five, a uh, Scottish, Welsh, and I think native actually in the, yes. so there's actually two red ensigns. People don't know this. There's the one that's associated with the, uh, world war one. And the, then this, after the second world war is essentially the two versions of the flag. I think the second one included the, or the later one would have included the, um, the Amerindians. Right. So this is a, uh, you know, an, an explicitly racial flag or ethnic, it, it actually means something, the, the red ensign. Um, but ever since the, uh, the 19, what, when was it, 1965 or something, when they changed the Canadian flag to the, to the leaf? I know, was, I, know, I know it was under Lester Pearson. I know that was, he was the one who ushered in that, the change of that flag. Right, right. So... Yes. So actually, uh, you know, b- back to Arkan, you know, he, he what was it called? The, the Christian National Social Party. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I got a little confused because I was reading this the other day, but I, I kind of got all the different iterations that came together 
to create this Nationals Party he controlled was a combination of uh, another Canadian fascist called Whitaker. He was an Anglo-Canadian. And uh, also the other figure, um, shit, his name escapes me. He was from Northern Ireland, right? Um, uh, Ireland? Oh, well, you're, I, think you're belie- uh, I think you're thinking of Farr, who's from Ontario. Yes, Farr, yes. yes. Farr and Whitaker folded up their, their political parties mm-hmm. into the Arcon Party, which was called what again? Uh, it depends on the, uh, on the date, but I think in English no. it would be the National Unity Party. Ah. of canada so nup and the story behind that is interesting whitaker was a rather old man he didn't have what it took to lead any movement whatsoever i think he was giving up at that time and then far had no ambition to lead whatsoever uh, which made akka out of the three the nat- the uh, natural uh leader of of such a movement at the end of the day right yes and uh so explain to me what what transpired how did the uh how did Arkan end up becoming the leader of this party that's a long story isn't it <laughs> uh <laughs> he started in journalism he was always a rather ambitious figure i would put it someone who thought of the world as something bigger than himself, someone who actually cared about his neighbors, who actually loved people. He started in journalism, all right? So he was a very respected journalist. He had met with some of the uh, cream of the crop uh, of of Canadian society and American society. Uh, To name them all would take enough time. It's in the book, I, I would say politicians, movie actors, sports players. Uh, it, it just goes on and on and on. Uh, royalty. And, and he got his start. He was, um, I believe, that in the 1930s, the vast majority of French Canadians voted for the Liberal Party, and he was instrumental mm-hmm. in changing that, where many started voting for the Conservative or the Tories, right, because of his journalism instrumental uh, yeah so he certainly had an impact i mean uh, he was reaching well, he tens thought of thousands he was, of people according to that article you sent me uh from the 19 from mclean's he thought that he was uh, responsible for <laughs> well the 1938 mclean's article that i found on him is a hit piece i mean it just reads snark like modern journalists do today oh yeah it's a rather sad piece if i had to say like there's no it's clearly impartial uh it's clearly uh does not hold to impartiality whatsoever um journalism aka journal right (laughs) right it's essentially it's impossible to write journalism without editorializing well i think that was an editorial editorialized piece if i may add Yes. Oh, like, that. I mean, just by 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 its own nature, there's nothing really journalistic about it. Right. Exactly. Uh, so, yeah, go into that a little bit about that that article. Sure. Well, I, I thought, you know, I don't want to give everything and the whole entire game away for the book and what it's about. It, it's a book about I'm talking about Serviam. It's a book about everything. Right. Uh, about his worldview. And the death of it is I don't think 
the 200 something pages really grasps his thought completely. There's tons of missing elements. We do not have a lot of his speeches, for example. We also don't know much about his uh, younger days. And then a lot of his, uh, uh, like his actual journalistic creations at the beginning were, they're not lost, they're archived somewhere essentially, you know, they're not accessible by you and I to be accessible by someone who probably works in a, uh, either for a big newspaper or, you, you know, it's not, uh, it's not something that I can get my hands on easily. You have to be working on it for academic reasons. Um, actually there's a Jewish uh, archive, uh, that actually owns a lot of the materials. Uh, yes. Funny enough, I can't, I can't remember, but some of it is accessible. Some of it isn't, but to answer your, your question, um, I think you uh, you're asking about the article. I thought it'd be yeah. interesting to sort of, even though I don't want to discuss the book in its in entirety, it'd take too long. Like to go across this article and sort of give a brief synopsis of his life, of his thought from the enemy's perspective, how it could actually be challenged and how it can be. Um, uh, taken into account considering today's current uh, political atmosphere. That's right. why I uh, brought it up, right? There, there's a lot of uh, very, very eerie similarities between what Akan had gone through and what uh, those of us here listening might be going through today. Yes, it's actually remarkably similar. Uh, the, it's just that the, the means have changed, mm-hmm. but the actual, the, 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 the actual struggle to merely express your opinion is literally no different. It's just a uh, different means, but they, they still, you know, after a certain point, especially in Canada, they just put you in prison. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's what they did to him. They, they do that sometimes in Britain, sometimes in Australia. It's extremely uh, privy to Commonwealth nations. And he held, he held that the uh, Canadian Jewish Congress lobbied for his internment, right? So he did have political enemies, even though he probably had more political friends. Uh, yes, they, they certainly did uh, lobby for him. I'm, I believe in his theory, although I don't have the exact proof of it. It makes perfect sense because we know what goes on today. Oh yeah, we can just stipulate that. You know, we can just trace it back to these times, and everything is more yeah. or less the same. Nothing's new under the sun, right? Right. You know, it's I mean, the ADL of Canada at the time. Yes. We, we discussed uh, Jonathan Greenblatt's new book mm-hmm. on Strike and Mike, where it's essentially them talking about they're, – they're talking about America like it's, you know, like they're, like they're soccer managers or something. They're just like, okay, so we're going to position the FBI here, and then we're going to get all the social media companies to ban them there. Then we're going to go and, and repeal Section 230, just like completely ignoring the other 98% of society. <laughs> just It's like they're, oh, they're like, chosen. Just, yes, they're, they're the dictators <laughs> that, that just completely ignoring any other concern. And anyone who has another opinion, another position or another interest that may clash with theirs, uh, they say, well, those anyone that disagrees with this is not political. It's prejudice. That's what he says in his book. If you disagree with me, you are not political. It can't, there's no such thing as a goyim disagreeing with us politically. They're just prejudiced. They're just uh, immoral, right? So, and uh, Arkan kind of talks about that in his book and, and kind of his critique. He has a, a sort of 
his critique of Jews is pretty much that they are um, highly materialistic and also highly like unusually racist. <laughs> so he's a national socialist. He's a racialist, but he says like Jews are like un- you need to have your own form of racialism to combat theirs because theirs is, is very much a, a sort of uh, like they, they, they just don't respect anyone who isn't them um, at all. And they see us as simply as marks, as targets, as people to be raped or killed or, or enjoyed in some way, turned into gold or sweat and blood. So, yes, that, that's essentially what he was talking about. So anyway, uh, let, let's go back to his uh, to, to his political party, which you, you said was the National Unity Party, right? Sure. Yes, it is. So, uh, how how big were they? I know that they had connections with uh, a lot of the Mosley people, British Union, the yes. fascists, right? Oh, uh, absolutely. Did, did Arcana ever go to to Germany or Italy? No, uh, he made it to America. Never, never to uh, Europe, as far as I'm aware. Not not as a politician, anyways. Interesting. Yeah. He actually used to entertain Yaki as well. Yaki and he were, oh, yeah. were good friends. And what's very telling, is, and this is actually how I first came across Adrian Arcon myself, was reading the Yaki biography. Yaki had a, had a reputation for being a bit of an enfant terrible. He, tend yeah. to quarrel, he tended to quarrel with everybody. The, one of the few people he never did that with, because he had nothing but esteem and respect <laughs> for him, was, was Adrian Arcon. And they would go to... Village, uh, the village church together. He'd play Bach fugues on his piano, and Adrian Arcon seemed to grasp exactly what Yaki's ideas were all about. And that's, oh, I think, one of the reasons why, when you read the stuff, it's very striking how Arcon seems to get it all right. We tend to, when we sometimes when we talk about these figures, we sometimes quibble here and there with problems they might have in terms of their thinking and their ideas that Arcon, from what I can tell, does not have that because he grasped intuitively everything that was the issue. Right. I, I also heard, uh, Maestro, that he was an excellent orator. Is this true? I haven't seen videos of him. With, without a doubt. I actually have a video that we could play. Uh, it's yeah, one of the it. links like that him. I sent you. He's He was better in French than in English, but his English was not terrible, mind you. I think he uh, he does sell himself quite well in English, and he can rile up various crowds uh in various languages, it's quite impressive. Yeah, all these guys were talented orators from Leon de Grel to Mosley to Mussolini and Hitler, obviously. Uh, it seems to be a skill that was taught to Western young Western men who went to college, right? Um, and it seems like they just stopped. I mean, where, where are the great orators now, right? It's like they don't exist anymore. Um, but anyway, uh, play the clip, Borzoi, if you haven't. Oh, uh, yeah, sorry, let me pull that up. I got distracted there for a second. I think it's uh, this one right here, the interview on CBC TV. Is that it, uh, Maestro? Well, my, my, my first defining by the, the word fascism means the word fascism was used in Italy. Nazism in Germany. Fascism in, in Spain. Rexism in Belgium. It means nationalism, control of a nation by its nationals. You said, I think, in the spring of 1940, your 
national unity, or I could we call it the Nazi Party, would take office in Ottawa. Why did you believe that? I was informed in 1938, whilst the civil war was raging in Spain, where, while there were sitting strikes in the United States and France under Mr. Leon Blum, that there was to be an attempt of revolution throughout the world. World Civil War in 1940. I thought that our country, as it is in its spirit and traditions, would overcome a leftist revolution and we would be in power. Didn't you share many of the other views of the fascists that... Uh, yes. Yes, <laughs> to save our high culture and civilization from negations. Isn't it true that in your writings you uh, deny this kind of individualism by being against uh, democracy, the liberal democratic We state? have not democracy. We have the party system. Democracy is the affirmation of classes. And the other side wants a classless society. So, so okay, Borzoi. Yep. Uh, so, uh, so he says negationism. Now, I in the book, he describes what he calls the concept of negationism, which is that uh, it is any he, and he's and he's describing communism and liberalism as two negationist systems. Where they try and seek to uh, undermine the authority of, of the man and the family. They try to undermine um, people's spiritual development and their physical and mental development and economic development. And that these are negationists because they negate what he refers to as natural law, right? Is that a fair summary of his concept of negationism, Maestro? You there, buddy? Which is that? Did we lose him? I hear you, so I know it wasn't you. Huh. We uh, may have, yes. Okay. Let me see what happened there, Maestro. What happened to you, buddy? You there, buddy? Bleh. How about now? Yeah, now we okay, got you. you. Okay. Oh, sorry about that. Uh, what did I say? My 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 answer to your question, Striker, is his view. So his theory of negation is from a calf from a, it comes from a catholic perspective so what you said is uh, fairly accurate um it, it is based um sorry i did lose my train of thought in my explanation as i got interrupted um can, can you repeat what you said i'm really sorry yes it, it, negationism my understanding of what negationism is is that it's any policy or system that undermines natural law so what what, it, what we mean by that is the man's authority and the family yes so now i remember where, where i was going with this so he, he does in a way take a naturalist uh, definition so natural law he like i was trying to explain is that it does come from a catholic uh and christian worldview of god defines and creates natural law and by negation, so negation would obviously be uh, from like satanic forces in his worldviews, things that always 
destroy, never create. Uh, the the Jews would be a negationist race, for example, in his uh, in his critique and in his works. Right, not non the the famous. Obviously, he's calling his. I'm assuming he the 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 name of this collection of essays was originally Servium, right? You didn't come up with that. So that was the um, that was the original calling cry of Akan. It's yep. uh, which is the opposite aware. of non-servium. I there will not what Satan says when he uh, starts a rebellion against God. So yeah, that so would I be non-servium uh, is negation, right? It, exactly, it, it is a negation. It's the non. It's the no. It's the anti. At the end of the day, I, I think it was. Uh, uh, was it um, the Archangel Michael who had said serve him in defense of the Lord? Right, right. So, yes, that, that's very deliberate, and it's part of his philosophy. Now, what, one thing I'll say, though, is that in some, in some respects, some of, his, some of his writing seems, at least some of the earlier stuff, seems a little stained by Toryism, by Anglo-conservatism. Is it fair to say that? Well, I didn't get to comment on the video, uh, the little clip that we watched. He said, "I." He said something to the effect of, "I was under the impression, or I was told, um, by by whom, and what does that actually mean?" So, in his works, he does have a lot of anti-Toryism. He says it is like liberalism. Just uh, he, he might even think it as being weaker, if anything, because right. they're sort of slaves to the uh, to the enemy, but. My theory is that what, what he means by that is that back in 1940, when he thought that he could take over, he was under the impression by the big wigs in Canada and perhaps in Britain, because he did have some support from um, the British monarchy, for example, that the, there was going to be a like, a like a Christian takeover of the West and all Western countries. He was under the impression from what was going on in Europe that it would be the case, that it was only a matter of time before everyone would just naturally come towards this but he was clearly wrong i think he was stabbed in the back and right. we're going to bring up that mclean's article so he, he does claim for example in the art uh, well the the writer uh of the article frederick edwards uh just just for reference this is written in 1938 it was just a couple months before all the parties uh it was actually uh, it's just two pieces it was actually written just around the time that the parties were all am amalgamated together into one Christian National Unity Party. Mm -hmm. What I suspect is that he was, um, he was under the impression that everyone was going to come to his defense. There was going to be a giant rally for Christendom, for the West, for Western values. And right. someone, something put a stop to that. All these people mm -hmm. who are supposed to defend him, we, we don't know who necessarily just Interesting. disappeared. With the advent of war in the uh, uh, well, it, this came right around the time that um, Hitler did his famous Anschluss of Austria, and oh. all of a sudden, all of a sudden, that there's a, some type of stab in the back from people. Well, again, he he was kind of leaning into this kind of conservative money base, right? Mm -hmm. There was a lot of a uh, conservative party affiliated people that he had built good. Uh, rapport with and came to rely on and assume that they would defend him and as usual as usual conservatives when it's time to actually act so run. to his to his death he was um a bit of a policy maker 
for the Maurice Duplessis uh, party, yes. which is a uh, very strong nationalist party. Well, it was a strong nationalist party uh, here in Quebec at the time. And well, I should say he was a strong political character in the 1950s. So yes. he certainly had sway. I think they used him more than he was able to use the conservatives. And yes, there, there, there certainly was a bit of a, like dangling like a little puppet. And unfortunately, yes. I, I began I began by saying that he did not deserve to be a politician because he's too honest, because he believed the others, because he had a sincere faith in the humanity of uh, the people right. he spoke with. You know, when someone tells you they're going to do something, he, he took that at face value. Right, right. And he was wrong. <laughs> I mean, sadly, but um, well, I, let's yeah. let's bring that into uh, like the article just for a second here. Um, yes. I quote from it. Uh, Trudeau, com- Pierre mm-hmm. Pierre Trudeau actually defended him in 1940. Did he not? So that's that's a mess. So Trudeau, um, tr- yeah. Uh, so Pierre Elliott Trudeau was uh, is obviously Justin Trudeau's father. He was also prime minister of Canada at one right. point. Um, there, so there's an image of him driving around in a Stonhelm, like the uh, the German helmet. He yeah. he was like an avid fascist in his youth. Um, Pierre Trudeau, from what I saw, yeah, Pierre Trudeau. I saw him. I saw his very signature on a document supporting the uh, the Gaulois uh, movement, which is uh, the movement of it's a separatist movement of Lionel Gru, who was a um, is a canon in English. Uh, that would be a uh, I, for lack of term, a re, he was a religious figure in Quebec, uh, very high up. Not, not. I don't think he was a bishop, but he was just under that. And he definitely signed on to like the youth movement of his. So there, there's, there's an interesting, there's an interesting change in his politics. How he went from, uh, from that separatism, like a very nationalist separatism, to uh, the liberalism that you had today. Yes, yes, because, of course, he was a prominent member and of the leader of the Liberal Party in the 19, was it the 1960s and 80s? Because he was, he was, uh, if I'm not mistaken, he was prime minister for like 20 years, wasn't he? Oh, uh, I'm the wrong person to ask about that. Pierre Trudeau? I don't think for that long, but I think he's elected a couple times. It was, well, yeah, it was a, it was a while because his longest tenure was six, was 68 to 79. He was basically prime minister for uh, all the seventies of Canada. And then wow. he had a stint again. And then again uh, until eight, 84. Yeah. yeah. So wow. it was only about a year, actually even le- it was like less than a year. He was out of power, out of, out of the office. So basically, yeah, it was continuously from 68 to 84, barring a brief period where he wasn't. Yes. And he, he was, he was kind of a strong man, wasn't he? It, it, as funny as that sounds, he was a, a, he, a oh, he's, no, he's no, a, no, no. Yeah, he was a big reason why basically a lot of the the Quebecois separatist stuff was tampered down. Because oh. that was because the war the War Measures Act, like one of the most famous usages of it in Canada, was dealing with the October Crisis and the FLQ. Right. Very interesting. Yes, uh, and I think. Uh, he was central when they had the referendum and rejected them, the Quebec referendum. So there, there's two right? referendums. Yes, he, he and he have, campaigned. Uh, he campaigned against it, right? Or yes, in the in the first one uh, when he was prime minister, um, the 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 one that's considered like the referendum was in uh, 1995. 
a little later. He, I think he was against it. If I recall correctly, I just, no, he was, uh, I think he died after before that. No, oh no, he died after. So yeah, he was against it. Even, uh, even the second one. So yes, he did have a lot of sway on, um, I guess like the bourgeois elements of, uh, French and English Quebec society of his time. Uh, right. And a lot of people don't know this, but, uh, you know, Borzoi mentioned the, the, the War Powers Act, mm-hmm. but uh, the, the Quebec had, the Quebecois had almost like a like an Irish Republican army style kind of, to a much smaller oh, extent. Obviously. The FLQ was they, serious, but they, a lot of people don't realize the, yes. the extent to which the FLQ was serious the 70s, business in Canada. Right. Yeah. We talked about that briefly, actually. Well, not briefly. We talked about that a bit when Maestro was on for the Quebecois uh, episode that we did last year or so or two years ago whenever it was yeah you had you wouldn't see it today with canadians but in the 70s they were planting like like ieds and assassinations and all this so shit. uh okay okay let's so yeah. the um so one of the persons who was arrested for that he had his fingers exploded so we knew it was him and he was like a rcmp member the like not the fbi Right. Not the Canadian equivalent of the FBI, but just like the police, the general police. And they do certain investigations and they're allowed to do uh, certain FBI like level activities. And right. he pretty much, so he exploded a bomb in someone's mailbox and he screamed out in the court, I've done much worse for the Canadian government and I'll probably do it again. <laughs> so he, I'm like 90% sure that most of those attacks were, uh, they're gay ops. They're, they're like you, you see so. today. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I have significant reason to believe so. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I believe it. I mean, the 1960s and 70s were full of stuff like that, and it does seem like the um, the mounted police, the RCMP, operates much like the FBI and seems to take a lot of of the same measures that maybe you don't see. They have more control in the UK in terms of you know infiltrating opposition groups and setting people up and stuff the rcmp seems to be just second to the fbi in terms of how dirty they are and how they operate so um yeah that, but yes it's very interesting history though about this uh this tension that occurred between the the fr- french canadians and the uh anglo canadians during the 70s uh, even if a lot of it it was fake there was rising quebecois uh, so- sovereignists, right? That's what they're called, sovereignists. I mean, in the 90s, they almost achieved independence. It was that close. Yes, yes. Kind of interesting to see, you know, because I, I believe I've talked to Maestro about this, that um, uh, French Canada is a, a completely different place than Anglo-Canada in a lot of respects. For example, uh, French Canada will remain 75 80% white well into the 2050s unless something changes. Um, it, it's still super majority white. And actually, you know, when I went there, uh, even though there's a lot of multiculturalism and a lot of gay shit and stuff in Montreal, uh, I was kind of surprised by how conservative a lot of the people outside of Montreal are, even in places like Quebec City, right? Uh, I didn't go to Quebec City myself, but uh, I did meet a lot of people from the more provincial parts of uh, French Canada. And they were very, uh, first of all, a lot of them did not even speak English or, or would pretend not to. <laughs> um, yeah, def- definitely don't try to speak English among most yes. of the, the Quebecois outside of, of Montreal. 
Oh no, they are very, very hostile to to that. And um, another thing that really surprised me though is that they were like, frankly, they were pretty like openly racist and shit. Like it's pretty funny, <laughs> which you don't expect with Canadians, right? Now the English speaking Canadians I met couldn't be more different. Um, I'm sure that people in the prairie, right, as they call it, Western Canada, I'm sure people there are different, but in general. Uh, there is a very, very marked difference in terms of the, say, behavior and politics of French Canadians and English-speaking Canadians. Um, so explain to me, um, back to Arkan, um, explain to me what happened. So we know he, he was imprisoned during World War II. He got out, I'm assuming, what, 1945, right? As soon as the war was over, or maybe later. Right, sir? I think we lost him again. Good. Give him a second. So he, he got oh, out as go. soon as the war was over. Ah, yes. And, and then um, what did he do? Because he was still active in politics into the late 60s, right? So, so what, for the next happened? 20 years, he did not give up his mission. He con- he just continued in politics. Uh, the So the War Measures Act was used to essentially, uh, I would say, penalize anyone who was a political dissident or was anti-war. So the mayor of Montreal, Cam Hood, he was in prison. Like he was uh, just taken in the middle of the night. His family had no idea where he was until uh, maybe I think a couple or three years later. Um, he was like the mayor of Montreal was just kidnapped in the, by the RCMP in the middle of the night. And, you know, um, he, he comes back. A lot of these figures came back. So uh, just, just to add like who was there. So, uh, fascists, Nazi sympathizers, uh, Italian fascists, uh, anyone like who was anti-conscription. <laughs> it was a blast. Like I, I have stories, my friends. Uh, so it's, it's, I, it's uh, like the Charlottesville Airbnb house, you know, <laughs> to have them for five years. You don't have so to work. I, you don't have to go. Yeah, exactly. To, just hang out. <laughs> well, they were working by you. Uh, I'll give you a quick, like little anecdote. Um, for, for example, uh, Arkan would like convince the Italians that he was like their leader and all of that. <laughs> and they would go around calling him the chef and uh, like the chief. It was pretty good. It was pretty good times. I know like, um, they changed their symbol from the swastika to like, um, to like a torch flame, uh, after the unification of the part of the three parties, just, just to wow. sort of like have a new symbol and what what happened was is that they would actually like make little tiki like not tiki torches but little like torches and wood that they would be allowed to carve out in the uh, in the uh, in the camps. I actually saw one myself. I uh, I know someone who was there. Yeah. Uh, and you know he told me all these fun like these little stories. They had a good time apparently. Yeah, it sounds like fun. Yes, the the forced or labor rather part be home. May, may suck. Yes, but and also you know being away from your family. But um, in general, though, that that is a, a very interesting hidden history. I'm sure that it wasn't obviously just uh, like you mentioned before. They put Italian Canadians in, in these camps. They put German Canadians in these camps, right? Um, not so. not that many German Canadians, actually. Oh, okay. uh, a few. Anyone who was essentially considered to be sympathetic with the uh, with the Third Reich at the time. Right. Right. So, yes. And how many people at its peak did this program hold? How many people did they put in concentration camps? At its peak at any like there's several concentration camps. Uh the one in Fredericton, 
the one that Akon went to, uh, so he sent to two, he sent to one in Northern Ontario and then one, the second one, Fredericton in the Maritimes. I don't think more than 10,000, which, you know, is still significant. Oh, yeah. Yes. Uh, so it says um, um, in in his book also that, um, I mean, how, how would you. So so actually, let me actually get back to his post-war experiences, actually. Uh, what exactly was he doing? Now, we know that he was very influential on Ernst Zundel. Who is the man who debunked the Holocaust, essentially? The man who proved that the gas chambers did not kill anyone. Um, mm-hmm. was, was actually Zundel, from my knowledge of him, uh, was a kind of like a 60s liberal. He was like a 60s radical who was a, a radical pacifist and he was a hippie. And, uh, he, you know, he was born in Germany and he moved to Canada. He worked in the art world, I believe. And then he met Arkan who basically told him about Germany, about his own people, things that he did not know about his own country. And that changed his mind forever. And, and he became, he went on a crusade to uh, attack the lies and defamations against the German people after that. So right? I don't know much about the Zundel story. All I know uh, from the brief research I did on it, that yes, they did meet, yes, they did. Uh, he was able to convince Zundel of uh, his own politics and beliefs he saw in zundel the actual future of the movement believe it or not i think um there's no doubt in my mind that uh the inspiration for zundel came directly from Arkan in terms of his uh uh his uh, i don't like the word denial his how, how would you put it his oh, well. uh critique of the the narrative the uh, know, of the I, uh, Holocaust narrative. I think that denier is is very much a loaded term. So I understand, but like I wouldn't actually have a problem saying that. Like, yes, I do deny that all the <laughs> Holocaust is false. Like, I deny that. I deny um, all. I deny the gas chambers. I deny that uh, the the, the mass shootings are exaggerated. I mean, yes. So maybe I am a denier, as you would call it. I suppose. I'm in. I'm in Canada. No comment. Oh. Is it illegal there now? So I mean, I know they they come back and forth. So it's been through the courts. It the so the lower courts are. I don't. I don't like the legal battles. I don't have the time nor the patience for it. Let's leave it at that. Ah, okay. I hear you. (laughs) Yes, you you are no Zundel. (laughs) Um. So in a way. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, actually, this is unrelated. But what are the the hate speech laws? I I do know that uh. Prime Minister Harper and his government repealed the hate speech laws. Are they back now? Um, no, he never repealed them. He oh. thought about it at one point. It never went through. Uh, I have some personal knowledge that it has been going through the circles of the Conservative Party right. on several levels, uh, from like the lowest levels to the highest levels. But it was never finalized or, I guess, made into law. So it's it's been on the books for a while now. Typical. Since the yeah. uh, since yeah since the um, since the Constitution was formed. Yeah, and the and free speech advocates have lost ground because now this, the conservative party is for hate speech. They they're they're trying to pass a law that would mm-hmm. outlaw Holocaust denial, as they call it, right? Yeah, that's. Uh, I forget who it was. It's proposed by um, some like unknown premier f- 
bro. Uh, he's from Manitoba, okay. I believe, who's pushing it on like Holocaust and all. I don't think that's gonna go anywhere, honestly. No. Um, possibly. I don't know. I I don't I don't think so. Well, uh, he'll still get a nice doggy treat for being good goy. So maybe that's what it's about. It's just to be seen doing it. But either way, yes, that's that's uh, more likely. Yeah, <laughs> he's so con- he's looking to run. So it's just just to tell you, he, he's looking to run for the uh, the leader of the conservative party. Essentially. Oh. Uh, uh, there you go. <laughs> so Fido Fido is doing some tricks to get the treat. There we go. OK, uh, so I, I want to uh, ask you again about uh, Arkan's work in the 1950s and 60s. So he gets out of he gets out of the, the concentration camp in 1945. Then mm-hmm. what happens? What did he do after that? Oh, he just reformed his, um, I think he just reformed his party, if I remember correctly. He just kept at it. He kept publicizing his journals. He kept meeting with conservative leaders, but uh, more open, uh, like more, uh, more in closed doors. That's when he started being a uh, bit of a kingpin for the uh, Duplessis uh, movement at the time. Uh, he he spent a lot of time also just giving speeches. He spent a lot of time also writing. This is I think this is where the vast bulk of his uh, of his works is being collected and actually formalized. So while he while he didn't really publish himself his own like his own uh, his own anthology, for example, he did have little uh, like little uh, essays written here and there, and a lot of it does come from this period. Right. And oh, from the 50s and 60s, the 50s and 60s at the end wow. of his life, because he, he so did wait, expire. What, what, are most right? of these, what are most of these essays and Servium from? Uh, most of them, I would say they're all over the place. Like okay. there's a the 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 greatest works, I would personally say they're from the later period. They're from the post-war period for sure. And that but that's my opinion as a translator and also, you know, just as an individual. Right. Um, interesting. Okay. So yeah, so he's, so he reformed his political organization. Um, it was no longer a shirt movement. And what I mean by shirt movement is they, I, I believe mm-hmm. they were the blue shirts, right? These the are 30s? the blue shirts. Correct. Right. Uh, they, so they, they kind of scrapped that right by the fifties and sixties and created uh, more of a parliamentary party. Uh, and he ran for mayor, right? number of times or for local representation um, or something so, so it'd be like um the equivalent would be sort of a governor of uh of a state so the premier of a province i think he he ran there he also ran in the national elections a few times uh he did everything he did mayorships he did i think he did one mayorship i think he did a couple times at the national level and then a couple times at the provincial level What's the furthest he got? No, he didn't get anything. Uh, he never won a single seat. His party never won a single seat. Well, well, how big were they at their peak, for example? So that would be pre-war, from my understanding. Uh, it's hard to really know for sure, because there's those who would read his newspaper and who would agree with him. But at the same time, like they would be in like those people would be more or less in lockstep with the conservatives, like the conservatives in Quebec would would like you would be almost indistinguishable in a way yes. from uh, the National Socialists. Like 
they were maybe a little like uh, oh, they they would be more cr critical of socialist policies, but they would still implement them because they had to be reactionary against the left. Right. Uh, so you had the formation of uh, credit unions, for example, which is a form of banking that's extremely popular here even to today, um, which is like the let's call it the democratization of banking right. in a sense. Uh, just just for example, so there was that like uh, they took inspirational like the, I, I got to say his weak point is his economic policies. Oh, he took yeah, that's what I was saying before that he mm. seems early on in particular he seems uh, a little stained by conservative party or perhaps trying to impress members of the conservative party or trying to meet them halfway. And you see this with white nationalists today, right? that they water down their ideology or take up silly conservative positions in hopes of, quote, you know, red-pilling the conservatives or meeting them, having a bridge to them, and so on. Uh, and, you know, even if you succeed, as Arkan shows, even if you succeed in doing that and in, in winning them over or winning their support, uh, they're going to they're gonna cut, they're gonna cut and run the first second that there's a little bit of pressure on them. So it's a completely useless ally, <laughs> you know. I mean, this is obviously Monday morning quarterbacking, as we say, in America. So it's this uh, pointless. But yes, uh, he seems to have very much a kind of a liberal economic perspective. No, no, no. I, I like he, he. No, not at all. Actually, he was very. Like you, you'll read it in the book. He's yeah. very anti-liberal economics and materialist. Especially yes. now, he did have what what I mean by he's not very strong in economics is that his policy he didn't have really economic policies as a bit of a right. pipe dream. Um, did he take economic conservatism from no, not not necessarily, not not what we would call liberalism today, not economic liberalism, anyways. No, uh, he would he would draw inspiration from the idea of nationalizing certain industries uh, yes. across Canada. So there was an anti-liberal stance in him, but I don't think he goes as far as European leaders do. And I must admit that's probably because due to the proximity of the Americans. As yes. Well, well the, I, I expressed myself incorrectly when I said he had lib. But what I meant is that he seemed to have some, like you said, he was definitely more of more moderate. Oh, in for sure. The Tory sense, more of a conservative in that sense. But he uh, didn't have and, to, if I may, he didn't yeah. have to go to an extreme pragmatically because there were communists in Canada and the United States, but they were not the powerhouse that they were in Europe. There wasn't that sense right. of urgency. So it, he wasn't reactionary in that sense, like the, uh, like the black shirts for were, for example, right. in Italy there, it didn't make, it didn't make sense. Now he saw what was going on in Europe, but at the same time, the danger was not on the other side of the Atlantic where he lived. Right. I, I think it's just a side of the sign of the times. And also Canada was like you have to understand the nature of Canada. It has always been um, a bit of a vassal state to other nations. Yes. Uh, at once uh, to the French, then to the British, now to the Americans. Continentalism, yes, that's a, it, it. Is continentalism? Yes, they, he talks about that, and he was very much, if I'm not mistaken, he was an anti-continentalist. Right? He he wanted Canada yes. to be closer to Europe than the United States. What was he anti-American? 
he was anti United States of America, anti American right. government to an extent because it was, uh, as everyone clearly saw, was the sort of the den of economic liberalism. So he he was he was anti that establishment, but to say he was anti American, like against the American people, no, not at all. No, I, actually, I, I understand uh, if, that. Yeah, yeah. If I may, he actually presented in front of the Hippodrome uh, in New York City, in front of I, I've heard all types of figures between ten and fifty thousand is the wow. range that I that I've seen. Oh yeah, in English too for two whole hours. Yes, his <laughs> he English did is pretty good. Yeah. Most yeah, mo mo most Canadians actually, most French Canadians, I, I'm I'm actually very impressed when I go to when I went to Montreal, and all types of people there, whether they're Anglo Canadians or French Canadians by birth and raised, uh, speak French and English, and in a very fluid way, you know, as Americans speaking a second language is simply unconscionable, <laughs> but for Canadians it's just second nature, isn't it? Montreal is a bit of the exception oh. for the whole for the whole country. So you're you're not getting a full picture, and oh, I, I mean like the the suburbs as well. Not not to say that there aren't English speakers outside, but Montreal has always been a uh, because it was an economic zone for the longest time. Had oh, a lot of business uh, English businessmen who came here and who dominated for the longest time. So the French were forced to learn English uh, to some extent in order to deal and compete with uh with that business interest and business class it, quebec city not at all uh what oh. what would be called three rivers no not at all uh it really it really just is montreal and maybe maybe gatsino which is right across from the capital uh in ottawa uh, well there's there's also uh, of course there's also uh, a certain English communities that still exist to an extent in the south of the province, like the eastern townships, for example. But, but besides that, like pure Quebecois, like I, I, I can tell you, they'll speak English. They're poor. They're they're mostly poor at it. There's obviously exceptions. Ah, interesting. So I, I was totally wrong. It's just in, in Montreal that. No, no, you're you're you made the right. You made the right uh, observation in Montreal. Yes, yes, everyone does speak English uh, quite fluently. It's it's very impressive. Yes, and and in Montreal also now, uh, and and he touches on this, um, or or there's there's a lot of writings related to Arkan that touch on this. The Jewish element in Canada um, mm -hmm. was concentrated in Montreal, right? So, <laughs> well, you've heard of the Molsons, right? Yes. Well, they're the, uh, I guess, the, the beer barons at the time. Right. So the Sleemans as well. Yeah, a lot of them would congregate into Montreal. You what sort about of the Bromfmans? Bromfmans, very yeah. big here. Uh, absolutely. It, funny, funny enough, Montreal was the economic powerhouse of Canada for the longest. Well, like whatever was Canada for the longest time. It was not until recent, for example, that you think of Toronto as the economic hub. Right. All the... Oh, you there? Hello? Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, what oh. I said was like, it, you know, Toronto's considered an economic hub, right? Mm -hmm. So yes. that's only because in 1995, due to the uh, uh, the separatist movement, all the banks left and fled to Toronto from Montreal. Like this was, and 
still is the Jewish uh, capital of the world. Wow. Uh, not the world, of North America in a way. Like you think of New York, but Montreal's pretty Jewish. Really? Yeah. Uh, yeah, you 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 don't you know I you always associate I mean I do at least you 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 know if you see three zones or two zones there's an Anglo and a French and so on so you just assume that Jews are going to be in the Anglo zone right or they 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 might oh be uh, yeah they have so there's no ties to the French whatsoever like right. I think they just consider them like a bit like the Irish in the day the Italians like just just a white class scum they. Right certainly love to be around protestantism yes and if and if, i remember reading that in 1931 Arcand was campaigning um because there was a mayor of montreal that was trying to form because uh until recently canada yeah. had religious education there's only religious schools so there was the catholic school and the protestant school and the jews used to go to the protestant school correct and so <laughs> And so yeah, that, that's that's correct. Yeah, uh, that that's a that, that's sort of how Arcan got his uh, his career going. Is that he attacked the uh, um, you did say the mayor? Uh, I think it was Bourassa at the time, yes. who was trying to push it, and he would um, attack him in the newspapers, and he got a lot of clout for that. He uh, he built his name up in in the early 30s with that uh, that whole uh, fiasco. Yes, because he and he had a, he had a. Um... He had to pull back on that. They were going to found a third tier of Jewish mm-hmm. schools so that Jews didn't have to go to a Christian school. And uh, and Arkan pushed back against that and was successful in doing so. It. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Arkan is by far what I how I would describe the most influential political man never to hold office, at least in Canada. Mm. Uh, even to this, even to this day, like there's a reason why they're still making movies about him. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it, it reminds me a lot of the relationship that we have to the conservative movement in that you'll see stuff, you know, we, we put out the Waukesha documentary and the next day, Tucker or like two days later, Tucker is talking about it on Fox News all of a sudden, mm-hmm. not the documentary. But the issue and the stuff put out there by the documentary. So you see that that relationship. And I and people think that when you when they do that, that that's like a like an olive branch or like there's some kind of relationship there. But in reality, the kind of symbiosis is that um, they exist to co-opt our stuff. That's what they do. And I think that in the case of Arcan because he was like one of the most brilliant men in French Canada. Um, if you wanted to get any kind of political success after he's been demonstrating it for decades, right? How to get gain political traction and success. Uh, you had to simply consult with him or rip his stuff off, right? The conservative party. In the conservative party. Yes, exactly. He, he was just extremely popular. Even to his death, he had 5,000 people who ended up uh, going to his funeral to see his really? Um Oh yeah, there was an Italian, like um, Italian uh, classical music band that played wow. at his uh, funeral and everything. I think we have a clip of it if you want, if we can play, play it for the play audience. It. Let's let's see. Borzoi, yeah. if you're still there, it's the second one I sent you. Uh, you should have it. Funeral of Adrien Arcan from Lanaré Church. So yeah. Uh, I mean, we're jumping ahead to the end of his life, but he was buried in the region of Lanaret. Uh, even though he was originally fr- so from the town of Lanaret, 
he was originally from the uh and his family from the region of Portneuf, but i guess you consider him a native of montreal himself and that's where he learned his english yes i'm back i'm I'm back by the way okay i'm pulling it up right now is my mouse is being all anyways you guys caught me in the middle while i was trying to quickly eat my dinner (laughs) oh sorry buddy yeah no worries Interesting. So, so he was a bit of a celebrity, eh? Oh yes, he was. Uh, to the to to the end. Even today, I mean, he, he's not entirely unknown. He's lost. He's lost his. Uh, you know, he, he's lost most of the fame that he had in the t- at, at a certain point. But in within Quebecois circles, he's definitely uh, a bit of a hero for sure. Yeah, I, I have a friend who uh, he's uh, he lives in the United States who was born in uh, Montreal, and uh, he was telling me that um, I believe his grandfather was in uh, the National Unity Party um, back in the 30s and 40s. So he says that in his own quote, you know, red pilling experience, it was mostly just reading. Uh, Archon stuff and various little little mm. pamphlets and stuff that he published over the years. A lot of anti-Jew stuff, a lot of um, stuff um, criticizing the power structure in Canada and so on. It was very insp- inspirational to him. You know, the United States did not really produce um, an intellectual like Archon in the 30s and 40s. Like, we didn't really have anything like that. That's very uniquely... Uh, French Canadian. It was very much a a kind of you know going back to like you know, French Canadians are like basically an outpost of Europe in North America. So uh, they kind of pr- produced at least historically a, a cut higher right uh, of of thinkers than the United States and other uh, New World countries, right? Well, we have a small population, and we did get a bit of a golden age in the 20th century of our of our thinking, for sure. Uh, it, it's not well known, but we we've had all sorts of uh, developments here in that period of time. Like, for example, uh, just just to give you just to give you one example, the same man who did uh, the Mount Royal Park here uh, here down in Montreal actually did the uh, design of the uh, uh, the park in uh, New York City, uh, whatever you call it. Central Park? Central Park, yeah. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. It just just like, you know, it's, it's, it's botany, so just one slice of the pie, we've had a great amount of, ex- uh, of, uh, of 
uh, of impact on the world, even though we're like the population's only at the time, especially was about 6 million people, maybe 7 million people. Yes. And, and, uh, what, what, what percentage of Canada are the French Canadians today? Well, that's a difficult thing to really determine. Those who are mother tongue French would be, I would, I would guess around a, maybe a fifth. If I had to say, I, I don't know for certain. There's a lot of like French, uh, like, like, French racial individuals who just lost the language over time, oh. especially down in Ontario, um, down in um, uh, down in the prairies. There's a few. The Maritimes, especially with the Acadian uh, fiasco that happened there. So, what's that? What's the Acadian fiasco? Well, I call it that, but it was essentially the um, expulsion of the Acadians by the British. Oh, uh, there was a bit of a well, there's a bit of a guerrilla war that had gone between, uh, well, you know, conducted by the Acadians when the British took over officially of all of New of all of New France. Uh, they exchanged hands of a particular fort, which whose name I, which name I do forget right now, five or six times, wow. and it was like a major fort. So at one point, the British got fed up and sent them all to uh, Louisiana, you know, the state of Louisiana, where oh, then that's where you get the Cajuns from. Yeah, they come from wow. Acadia. Uh, Acadia, I think the Cajun, yeah, the Cajun name comes from Acadia. I think uh, in and of itself. Yeah, it's it's because of the the way that it it became pronounced basically when they had to uh, when they had to intermingle with the with the English speakers mm -hmm. down there. Acadia, oh, Acadia became so Cajun. that's where that's where the Cajuns come from. They come from they were expelled yep. from Canada. Wow. Yes. You, mm -hmm. And if you there's parts of a very rural southern Louisiana. Where they still were, they're dying off. There's very few of them now, but they still speak French. They, that the derived uh, Cajun French is their mother tongue. Wow, interesting. Yeah, and what, what's that called? It's it's there's a name for it, right? And uh, Arkan was one of the first kind of intellectuals to write in this dialect, um, not Cajun. Uh, Joal. Yes, Joal. Le bon vieux Joal. Yeah, oh, that's that's so it. It, I forget where that word comes from. It, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a mystery if I remember. It's not really certain for sure. I think it comes from like old old French. Uh, that is the vernacular that the Quebecois use, which is uh, uh, today heavily influenced by the Catholic Church, and a lot of the swear words come from that. So you know your your tabernacle, your uh, um, you know, and all that would would derive directly from that would be considered joie. Um, yes, it's it's a it's a dialect of French, which is heavily influenced by uh, the northern French, especially who came Normandy. and settled here. Nor Normandy, but not not just Normandy, a few other regions as well, parts of Switzerland, um, and they all amalgamated together to form uh, what would be the Quebecois, uh, you know, the French Canadian people today. Yes, the French Canadians are largely from northern France, right? That's where their origins are. Uh, largely, yes. yes. And and also because a lot of a lot of the earliest settlers came before the French Revolution, and they didn't have ah, that kind of institutionalization that. that came with you know with with what happened to the French language and all that. Yeah, the French Canadian language is known for its for these archaic words that the French had 
that the mm-hmm. that the mainland French had modernized that, but that the right. Quebecois retained within their language. And another thing too is that you know in the the kinds of waters that Arcan swam in, uh, the, the 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 French Canadians traditionally are more anti. They're frankly more anti-Republican than the actual French in France. So uh, there's more sympathy for kind of even if not fascism or national socialism. Uh, the French Canadians have always been kind of very skeptical of democracy and more sympathetic to even things like the Ancien, the uh, Ancien's regime, right? Um, uh, the Ancien regime, yeah. Yes. The, so the old regime, uh, he right. certainly, I know, for example, in Quebec City, there's a bust of uh, one of the Louis just right. in a prominent, <laughs> just just right there in a prominent, um, uh, just just in a prominent walkway in old Quebec City. Yes, and they're far more uh, open to ca- uh, the Catholic Church and monarchy and things like that in in French Canada than they were uh, in, say, 1920s and 30s France, right? Oh, absolutely. The the Catholic Church dominated here. The, they declared a war of the berceau, like a guerre des berceaux, which would translate to English to uh, the war of the uh, – uh, <laughs> you're going to love this – the war of the um, – uh oh, what is it called where you rock a baby to sleep um i'm so sorry i don't have the word oh, uh, it's okay. uh, not a not a rocking chair but a uh where you put a baby to sleep a uh lullaby Cry- crib the crib the the okay. the war of the cribs so they're oh. like well the catholic church is like well we can't compete with the english in business because they keep cutting us out well we're just going <laughs> to uh, we're just going that's amazing yeah uh, and and how how historically uh, you know again Canada has always been uh, you know the, the the history of Canada is much more interesting than people you know no offense that people would assume it is it's actually much much more interesting and uh, it's it's unfortunately for me a bit of a blind spot oh you should look into Louis uh, into the history with uh, Louis Riel striker you'd probably yeah. find that whole ordeal very very interesting that would that would involve the Métis which are the basically the 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 intermix uh, Indians and and French Canadian fur trapper peoples they tried they had their own uh, little uh, independent sovereignty movement that helped lead to the creation of Manitoba basically it's a, a very 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 condensed version of but Louis Rail is a very still for people who in what's well, funny what I noticed is that I, because I got really because of my partial Canadian ancestry I got really interested in Canadian history once and I would talk but you talk to some Canadians like it's either something they know a lot about and those are people who are really deep those are the Canadians that are deeply interested in their history or they know nothing about their own country because they're just basically they're just little Americans is what they essentially have are little right. uh, liberal Americans but yeah Louis Riel still a very controversial figure in Canadian and uh, for people who are into Canadian history yes Canadians are are presented as as highly conformist and stuff but clearly history shows different that they're not. Um, I think that that assumption comes from the fact that all the people that were loyalists during the American Revolution went to Canada, right? Uh, after the revolution. So well, that's how English Canada formed. Sorry, sorry, I cut out before. Yes. Yeah, so, so English Canada and French Canada are both uh, certainly their histories seem to be uh, in, in antagonism with liberalism. Mm-hmm. 
even if it's something corny like monarchy or, or, or theocracy, it's still uh, Canadians are by heritage, whether French or Anglo, illiberal. Their country exists because of people uh, rejecting liberalism, right? You cannot have a nation, like a proper functioning nation in Canada that's liberal. It doesn't work. Just the climate's too cold. Just that in and of itself mm. means that you cannot have a nation that, that functions on liberal principles. We, we pretend that we do, but we're extremely illiberal in practice. Just, just it's too vast, first of all. Right. Uh, the climate is too cold that the only way to get anything done in this country is through uh, either cooperation or, or or some type of uh, not universalism in and of itself, but a, a form of uh, like government cooperation and government uh, power. Nothing else gets done. And it's been like that since the uh, uh, the company of the 100 associates uh, have made their way into France for economic yes. reasons. Yes, and it shows you also what a, what a, what a, how how silly the things like the democracy index are. I mean, you you know you look at the guy and you would never take him seriously, but and again, being being illiberal is not always in and of itself good, right? Because you see uh, J- Justin Trudeau um, implementing the Emergency Powers Act and treating the truckers uh, like terrorists. He's essentially usurped di- dictatorial powers. The Canadian Constitution lets you do that. Well, I'm, I'm just happy that we set the precedence that it can be done with a minority government. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, yes, you know, again, just because Justin Trudeau looks like a huge fag doesn't mean that he isn't also like the Canadian system, despite having a bunch of clowns and stuff as as leaders. Um does give prime ministers dictator powers and and just and everyone in the world is kind of shocked because when you think of canadians you 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 see them as synonymous to liberals but the canadian constitution is thoroughly 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 hedged against liberal uh arguments so they'll be liberal to the point of you know maybe the trappings of liberalism you know uh pleading for more racial uh, you know, equity and and gender well, politics and stuff, but in, in economic liberalism, right? Exactly. In actual practice, the Canadian mm-hmm. system is quite authoritarian, is it not? I, I mean, it, it's sort of in between. I, a lot of people like to go out and say, "Oh, it's fascism and it's this or that. It's autocratic or whatever." They can come up with for communist. Right. I don't. I don't take that opinion. It's it's just parliamentarianism and parliament has given itself through the British crown the certain powers, which include apparently taking away people's bank accounts for their supposed right of protest. So yeah. it's a it's hypocrisy at the end of the day, which is completely expected. Always right. expect hypocrisy. Right. Well, now, would you say that the, you know, going to the trucker protests, is, is there any kind of is it more of an Anglo or a, a French phenomenon? It's funnily, it's both. Oh. <laughs> it's not one or the other. I think they're just uh, one, I mean, str- there's more one Anglos, struggle, baby. One struggle. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's interesting. Like the for the first time in a long time, 
French and English uh, <laughs> workers are sort of cooperating together. And you, you would never see that maybe 12, 10 years ago. Right. Yes. And, and it's obvious, too. And I've heard other people say this. That it's not really about some COVID policy. Like the people there are just mad at the government for a lot of things. This it's is the excuse. excuse to go there. Right. Mm-hmm. Everyone there. Because even if they, you know, they probably would have just repealed the mandates on their own. Well, they're doing it already. They're, yeah, they're, that mandate's without gone. Any, and, without any protest. But it's just an excuse to go to get people out to the city to fuck with them. Because they're, they're just mad at the government. Because the government is corrupt, inept, and, and vicious and oppressive. You know? And I think this is... Uh, you know, speaking of the devil, too, by the way, Arkan got his start as a writer. He wasn't a writer until the uh, Spanish flu. So in 1918, mm-hmm. during the outbreak of the Spanish flu, they actually did a lockdown in Canada where they closed down all the public facilities and, and uh, uh, you know, bars and restaurants and so on. They closed everything down, schools, and had everyone stay home for a year during the Spanish flu. And that's when Arkan uh, began writing, right? Uh, yes. I, so he was sick for a while. Was it from the Spanish flu off the top of my head? I'm just going through the book. I do not recall. (laughs) Um, okay. So from the book, uh, his studies and future plans experienced a sudden dramatic halt as the Spanish flu ravaged Canada and Arcan fell ill, forcing him to be bedridden for nine months. For someone so passionate about life, this period of inaction was agony. This inaction weighed on him, and he used what meager strength he had to read, deepening his personal knowledge in a number of cultural domains. He also used his time as to meditate and to pray. The faith that he inherited from his mother reassured uh, him during his recovery, and he came through this trial more faithful than ever. So um, he, he definitely, yeah, so quote again, set aside his formal studies to accomplish his dream of becoming a journalist. So uh, he certainly used that time uh, sort of not, not only to develop his uh, I, I guess linguistic and writing skills, but also um, also his religious components of uh, and spirit at the same time. Yes, yes, and you actually see that to uh, to an extent during the COVID pandemic. Uh, a lot of people rediscovered religion during uh, 2020, right? Um, and I think it's because people, when they feel, uh, you know. For a while, people thought it was going to be like a, a world-shattering, world-ending event. And so they people become more sensitive to spiritual matters during those times. So, yes, very interesting. Uh, all right, so let's get to the questions, boys. Well, we don't really have any. We have two donations from what I can tell. I'm sorry if anybody donated to the Streamlabs. Frank was supposed to be here tonight, but he had an emergency. And I left that. I forgot I left that link in there. So if you donated to that, I'm sorry. I have. I don't. I can't access that. That's that's next week. We will get to it if you. Yeah. If, yeah. So uh, Tam donated fourteen dollars and eighty eight cents. Thank you, Tam. And uh, Borzoi's autism diagnosis donates three dollars <laughs> and just says good 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 graph. Good 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 graph. All righty. Um. Okay. So uh, any anything else, uh, Maestro? Uh, perhaps like a few quotes from the book or in order. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, let's, let's see what I pulled up here. So, I mean, oh, you know what? I I haven't even brought this up. Who is this book for? 
yes, I translated it, but like, who is the actual supposed audience? I, I would give it to your friend. If you're listening to this, I would buy it and give it to your friend who's sort of on the fence, especially if they're a Christian. And what Akan perfectly does is that he squares the circle for, uh, let's say, like uh, alt-right, deep-right thought and extreme-right thought with christianity he he puts it in a very precise and concise manner that is not to be ignored i think i i I would give it to someone without even reading it who is really just right on that edge who needs that little extra push to sort of explain the uh the, the world to them that's certainly who i would designate this book to right um, uh, I think I think you're right about that. I haven't seen uh, someone write uh, uh, from a Christian, you know, these kinds of politics from a Christian perspective like Arkan does. You know, he, he especially the, when it comes to the racial question, he brings up the, the, the concept of natural law, upholding natural law, of which race is a, a basic tenet of it. It doesn't mean you have to hate people of different races. Or treat them badly, but there is a natural law to respect in terms of racial preservation, right? And uh, and he kind of argues it very well because many times Christians, including Christian reactionaries, have trouble squaring the circle, as you said, uh, with racialism, right? So Arkan actually does it, which is why it's very impressive, you know. But anyway, uh, on that on that point, and to add to that, also the um the criticism of Jews in and of themselves. I think he also, (laughs) he just puts it succinctly on why as a Christian, you cannot uh, do the evangelical thing or the apologetic apologism for Jews. Right. Right. Exactly. So go. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. Donation from Joan Arden, $14.88. Hail NJP. Everyone go listen to Pest Noir after the show. Oh, yes. Okay, so Pest Noir is a black metal band here from uh, Quebec. I've listened to them quite a lot. They're they're like a national socialist black metal band. Oh, they're from Quebec, huh? I'm quite certain they are, yeah. I thought they were from France proper. Am I, am I incorrect? I thought, I thought Pest, because I remember when I was a kid even, Pest Noir was around. Oh, they're from the 90s, no? Yeah, they're, early uh, 2000s, 90s. French black metal band. Oh, yeah, I'm so sorry. France. They are from France. My mistake. But they are they are yeah. NSMBD. A- NSBM, yes. yes. Uh, oh, sorry. Yes. No, no, it's yeah. okay. These are all extremely... <laughs> these are extremely I, I was never really arcane, into it. <laughs> arcane, yeah, <laughs> terms. Nazi black metal from the early 2000s. That's very, like, a, yes. Uh, go ahead, uh, read your quotes. Sure. Uh, just on the point of the uh, Christianity. So, for example, he makes a comment of the Mitbrennen der Sarge, which is a the Pope Pius IX condemning National Socialism. Uh, he writes, I have read perhaps 100 times in his German, Latin, English, and French texts their encyclical letter. And I have never seen anything that condemns National Socialism. Certainly, there are allusions made against Alfred Rosenberg and his 90,000 Wotanists. Um, just, to, just to mention, uh, this is against 80 million Germans. 
but not one illusion against uh, Hitler or National Socialism. In better times, I have written to a very high authority to ask as a Catholic and for the eternal salvation of my soul that they instruct me on what may be worthy of condemnation in Mein Kampf and in the speeches of Hitler. They could not indicate anything that was worthy of condemnation. Hitler had, wa- had lawfully banned communism, socialism, aesthetic, and free-thinking clubs, uh, Jehovah Witnesses, homosexual clubs, and Freemasonry, uh, all of the enemies of the Christians. These are all the things that the church has always condemned. As one true leader of the Western world, he had the immense honor of throwing his armed forces against the USSR. He implemented the Port de Brassard upon the Jews. Uh, it's like a, a, like a, like a port of arms copying the popes in the middle ages who imposed the wearing oh not arms but um he's he's saying he he imposed the uh like the star david uh uh the yellow star that they would have to wear copying the popes of the middle ages who imposed the wearing of the badges upon the jews at that time there's an interesting quote in here and i've never seen something like this before this is page one thing I'll say, so I, I, I didn't I didn't catch what he said about Alfred Rosenberg, but uh, one thing I noticed from reading uh, fascist literature from the 30s is that Alfred Rosenberg's book is actually very divisive in terms yes. of how it was seen. And I don't so, know, if you know the history of it, but yes, it, his book is extremely LARPy and it's very stupid. Like yeah, the, the myth of the 20th century is very – I, I don't trash. like it. Hitler Hitler himself thought Didn't, it was because he refused yes. to read it. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, I, like Alfred – it was, it was, it, He thought it was retarded and embarrassing. And, it is because uh, it's based off of nothing. Like I mean it, it certainly makes for good fiction. Well, but, I, what, I, what I recall though is that a lot of people that were sympathetic to the Nazis – when that book came out, we're like, what the hell is this crap? Like, this is just some kooky, weird nonsense. So my, my theory is, is that because of the war effort, a proper religious um, conceptualization of a nation was not able, was not capable of being properly formed. There were bigger fish to fry. And individuals like rosenberg who i i I do have respect for him for sure me too yeah but they were given a bit of a free reign to develop honestly kooky ideas like the the, uh, to be fair like to consider the romans and the greeks as german oh yeah would be offensive to the romans and the greeks you know what i mean and that's not about yeah read tacitus does tacitus say oh these people that are exactly like me are, I mean, it's just it's well. Um, what I mean, stupid. We, we it is stupid, and we know, for example, that Alexander the Great, for example, just just one had one blue eye, one brown eye. He had brown hair, uh, well, according he, to the no, legends. Alexander probably was blonde, but so are tons of people from the Balkans. Yeah, that, that but he doesn't yeah, mean for they're sure. German. Like it's no, they're not German. Um, but no, he Alexander's. Usually depicted as a like, fair brown hair, from my uh, from my historically, it's actually true that he himself had blonde hair. Oh, really? Uh, yes, the fresco, the Roman fresco of him, the famous uh, fresco, is mm-hmm. actually not accurate, but it, it 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 is how the average Greek looked in Roman times was the Alexander the Great fresco. But people from that part of Greece. To this day, I've known I've had many friends from northern Greece, which is where uh, Alexander was from. 
mm-hmm. they tend to have they tend to look more like uh you know oh they would get offended if i say if i say this but they tend to look more like you know um upper balkans people like like not not slavic but they tend to be more macedonians fair. right <laughs> Yes, the real Macedonians, not the there you go. Bulgarian Macedonians, <laughs> as they would yeah, say. Yeah, exactly. But, but yes, uh, Alexander looked like what he is, an, a Macedonian. So that doesn't mean he's German. Macedonians still look like that today. Uh, but it doesn't make them German. And that, that kind of LARPiness is like we, we, was, we was Greeks, you know, that kind of stuff. And I, I do recall reading um, Onisimo Redondo – who is the phalangist, um, very famous phalangist leader, died. And uh, he used to write stuff about Rosenberg's book and be like, this is just bizarre. What the hell is this garbage? So Arkan wrote that, wrote about that too, huh? Yeah, uh, I'm sure he read it and ah. probably threw it out in the trash. <laughs> I, it, I, it's like, it's a good stupid. work. It's a good work. Like there, there's a level of sophistication to it, but yes. when you break it down, it's just not. It's it's very uh, conspiratorial. It's larpy. It it doesn't make sense. You, like I think there's a part, for example, where he condemns Christianity as being like an Eastern religion, and then brings up the cult of Sol Invictus, which is equally a re- Eastern religion from the like the, the near Middle East. Oh, so he's an Apollonian. <laughs> well, he considered like the Apollonians to be the on the same level as the Wotanists or something to that avail. Um, I don't even I remember reading like half of it when I was younger and just being like, it, it reminds me a lot of remember Arthur Kemp. Arthur Kemp, uh, the South African author, wrote March of the Titans. That's oh, another, that guy. That's another that super LARPy book. Yeah, that's. Very much in the vein of myth of the 20th century. Um, in fact, I would be surprised if it's directly inspired by it. But yeah, they'll they'll take things like they'll find like a a, a, a vase from, from ancient Greece with that that portrays someone with blonde hair and be like, thus the uh, you know the, the this the, the Minoan civilization or whatever was was made up of Germans, uh, you know, and so on. So yes. And that obviously people in these other countries that that they felt like they're trying to co-opt their history uh, didn't like that, obviously. So, yeah. But uh, but anyway, uh, you got any more quotes? Uh, We might have lost them again, but Phantom Soul donates twenty dollars, by the way. Oh, fantastic. Thank you, Phantom. I I realize every time my phone closes, it uh, anyways, it it cuts me off. Sorry about that. Yeah. Um, So this is one from Kurt Wilhelm Ludek, page 127, uh, who spoke with uh, Arkham. I have lived 15 days of Hitler on a very strict but intimate terms. He is undeniably a genius. There is no reason to dig into the details. Enumerating the great lines is sufficient with him. There is one thing that I do not appreciate with this man. Too many Madonnas, the Virgin Mary. And crucifixes in his private apartments. It smells of papism. <laughs> uh, that continues. Uh, Hitler had a divine muse, just as all great men do. His was a Virgin Mary. He believes that it was Mary who saved him when he was injured in the trenches during the war, that he had seen her, that she had said to him he had the mission to save Europe. 
to what extent I believe that personally, I do not know. It sounds a bit far-fetched, honestly, but it is in there. And I can't believe it. Mm. Interesting. Uh, what uh, else have I got? Go ahead. Yeah, no, go ahead. Uh, no, that's fine. I, oh, if I had to like just give you uh, my favorite part. So what's good about this book is that it's a very easy read, even though the material is complex. But it yes. breaks down nicely, which is a blessing in a disguise because while some of the chapters are relatively long, there's sub-chapters, which... Did, you, did I lose you again? No, no, we're here. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, there's, there's was... sub-chapters. That's okay. Uh, so there's there's subchapters, right? Which makes um you can put it down and come back to it. You can find your sources more uh, uh, more succinctly and in less time. It's very uh, it's very useful. So yes, oh. uh, to, to just to say what's actually in the book itself, it touches so many different topics. Um, it does touch uh, the JQ. It does touch on communism, on capitalism, liberalism. It touches on economics to a point. Um, certainly, religion, uh, the Catholic religion. It touches upon. Um, where where do you even continue? It just the, the the material in it is so diverse. It yes. truly is a full worldview. There's there there the the man who did actually compile these texts did a wonderful job. I think. Uh, Paul, uh, Paul Beaumont is his name. That's his name, right? Because uh, I, I was uh, I was a little bit confused because I thought that some of these were people, like I thought that was your name or something, <laughs> and I'm like, oh, does this guy going under his own name with this? But um, it's actually the the trans. The, so was this originally in French and never seen in English until now? Most of it. I think a few, if I'm not mistaken, of these uh, chapters were translated into English in 2019. Right. But that's more or less when I actually started this project. Uh, it was, uh, I think it was like early 2020. It just took a long time uh, due to some delays. Interesting, interesting. So, I mean, this is why Antelope Hill books is so amazing, is that this kind of stuff would be completely lost for it not for them, one, curating things very well, and two, actually investing in things that are mm -hmm. kind of novel and interesting like this. Like, again, most people have never even heard of this guy. He was a major figure of history, you know, so. Of this time period, absolutely. Yeah. How... This is the first time it's been printed, that's for sure, in right. English. Um, it, I just find it fitting and poetic that the last man, uh, the last of the great men of that period who were leaders of these movements throughout Europe and the rest of the world was Arcan, and that he uh, and being such an Anglophile, the last to be translated into English is a bit of an astonishment how it took so long. Yes. I do not comprehend it. The, the one man to make it and actually set foot in America to give speeches. Yes. What? So what happened to what? What has happened to Canadians? So they have this amazing history, much more rich than the United States, honestly. This rich history, and um, what? What? what where, where, why is Canada so gay? 
<laughs> right now. I mean, when I was um, there, I loved, listen, I loved Montreal. Montreal, it's kind of like these, it's not, it's not I'm not going to say it's the most beautiful city in the world, but I loved the people, wonderful women, uh, really friendly, mm-hmm. warm, uh, just kind and, and, and fun and stuff like that. I mean, yes, there's a lot of drug addicts and shit, but overall, I really enjoyed my time in Montreal. Oh, very cheap, you know, for at least at the time uh, to go out and eat and stuff. So I, I really enjoyed it, is, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really enjoy. I, I really love how kind of deliciously. I've, I, this is how I've always described Montreal: is that it's kind of um, um, lovably sleazy. You know, <laughs> that's the, that's a good way to put it. <laughs> it's very. It's really sleazy. It's it's a fucking sleazy city, but it's in a lovable way. You know, so there's charm to it for sure. Uh, really you, charming. You get yes. both of both worlds. Like you don't have to see the sleaze. Funny enough, like you can avoid it completely if you know how to. There's so many nice spots in uh, on the island and a little bit off the island as well. Yeah, yeah, no, but I I loved every every minute of it that I spent there. It was a shame that the port is so gay. Like it's like a gay district, right? Uh, yeah, that's like right next to the um, is it called the Gay Square or something right. around Berryucan Metro. Yeah, that so that's like a drug infested cesspit. If you ever come to Montreal, take the Champ de Mars, so the the um, uh, the Fields of War Metro Station. Yes, just has the, just has the name Mars in it. While you're traveling around, you'll you'll find it if you want to go to the old port. You'll skip all the um, all the vileness, just oh. like that. Most of it, anyways. Yeah, I had a guy. Uh, yes, uh, many many funny stories. But yes, I I actually had a guy try to pick uh, a drug addict tried to pickpocket me. In really uh, in down that in that area, uh, yes. Yeah, if you're in I, that area, yeah, yeah. That it's very rare. Like people do not get pickpocketed here. It's yeah. not like Europe. Right, right. In that but, area, that's the exception. But I noticed, yeah, I, I noticed that that he was like trying to do that, and he was like, "Well, why are you accusing me? Why are you accusing me?" Well, I wonder why, right? Yeah. The, the <laughs> problem is, is that the, um, the police. Oh, oh, got a visitor. Sorry about that, man. Little 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 nigga. All right, <laughs> let's wrap it up. I think Borzo's got some stuff to do, so. No problem. Um, Je- Jesse donates uh, fifty dollars. I think there should oh. be more Canadians on the show. Smug emoji, uh, leaf emoji. Yeah. yeah, no, no. Um, sure, yeah. Uh, oh, do you have any plans for the future? Uh, and oh, and thank you, of course, for the donation. Uh, very generous. Do you have any 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 more books you plan to translate? Um, There's a few that I've. I've been interested in i haven't had um the time to do this like this this book was a project it took several months um and yeah. several delays just by the fact that i was so busy with uh certain other things do i one day i would love to do more uh antelope hill is also very backlogged and i don't want to really publish with anyone else i, I think um, yes. uh, i love i love them and uh i hope they love me yeah, yeah. So, uh, okay, you can get the book at uh, – the link is in the in the description, right, Borzoi? Yeah, I put it all in there. You can easily find it. It's, it it direct, oh, links directly to the book. One more thing also. If, um, if you do – if you are a French speaker, get it in the original French. Mm-hmm. 
I don't, while I do think I did a fair job on the translation, just so much is lost in the details of it. Like I was just reading it earlier and I, like it just, it's definitely not the same. There's certainly a lot that's lost in translation. So the the link to that is on the same link for the actual book itself with Antelope Hill. Uh, You can find the French link in there. I've read Arakan in the original French. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, true. Reading, reading translated stuff always feels like eating uh, a week old microwave dinner. You know, it's uh, not the same. You lose a lot of context. You lose a lot of um, a, a lot of, of of the flourish that I'm sure he yeah. was very reliant on in uh, in colloquial or dialectical French Canadian, right? Um, so, oh, for, yes, for sure. Last last thing on that point that yeah. I have for tonight, I think. Um, so I, I want to thank everyone from also. So the French translation was done from Recon, uh, ReconquistaPress.com, who uh, a lot of us are familiar with. So I thank them for for uh, for doing the anthology. I also want to thank um, Rémi Tremblay, who was an individual who did the biography of Arcan. Maybe that's something I would be interested in translating into Engl- uh, into English one day. Uh, there is so he did the biography of the uh, that's in the book itself, but that's a condensed version. There's a much longer version that's out there that I would li- that I actually have a copy of, but I would like to translate. So I'd like to thank him for ge- being a bit of the inspiration towards this uh, towards this book. All righty, so I think that's about it. Get the book, Servium. I enjoyed it. Um, a neat little piece of history that you will not find anywhere else. Um, so that's about it. Uh, play us out, Borzoi. Sure thing, everybody. There's a new pause button now. Uh, Nerd Culture Redux. Go ahead and check it at the right stuff that is. Have a good night, everybody. Yep. Thank you very much, Maestro. Yes, thank you. Thanks for having me.